Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to our latest edition of the Mouthy IP. Today we have our standard list of experts, including Sarah, Rebecca, Kate, and Dr. Hankins. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Dan. Today, today we had another interesting question, always interesting. Let's hear from them. So this episode's question came to us via email. So I am just going to read this question for everybody. The question is, I know that anesthetic carpules are considered medication vials, and I know there are some disinfection procedures that go along with medication vials. Can you talk about these processes and why they're important? Good question. But before we answer that question, we have something to celebrate this week, do we not, Sarah? We do. It is the month of September now, so it is Dental Infection Control Awareness Month. Super exciting. Yeah. And there are so, two topics as exciting as injection safety in infection control. Most of us right. who do infection control get real excited about safe injection practices. Absolutely. And if you are celebrating Dental Infection Control Awareness Month, go give your infection control coordinator a high five after you practice hand hygiene. After you practice hand hygiene. I think that's very well yes. said, Sarah. Yes. So we have Rebecca on the call today and she's our special guest. Um, Rebecca has practiced as a nurse for a very long time and um, in the field of vaccination particularly. So has a lot of reasons to be passionate about infection control. I'll start with some of my passion for infection control, reminding the viewers that we record from Nebraska ICAP in Nebraska. And Nebraska is a place that's actually unfortunately famous for one of the biggest outbreaks of hepatitis related to injection safety malpractice. And so for those of us who have lived in this realm in the past 20 years, we remember um, this case and what happened. And what happened was um, a really famous patient um, safety advocate, Ellen Mc Evelyn McKnight, um, was getting cancer care. And during the course of her cancer care, it, she was identified to be positive for hepatitis. And her husband is a physician and knew that Evelyn had very little risk factors to acquire hepatitis and was very concerned. And also as a member of the practicing community in the city where they lived, he knew that he was also seeing other cases of hepatitis and wondered what's going on. And so a public health investigation ensued and they found the link was to an oncology clinic. And so what they found was, and there's a famous book about this called A Never Event. And Evelyn McKnight is one of the co-authors of the book. I encourage everybody who practices infection control to read the book because um, it's a really good way to advocate and be able to tell the story to providers in your practice about why this matters. But what they found was um, the people who were getting cancer care they had a port, you know, like, and so when you are taking care of a patient with an implanted port, you have to flush those out 
to make sure that like the blood and clotting and whatnot is very, it's flushed away before you infuse medicines. And so um, the port required 20 cc's or milliliters to flush and they had 10 cc syringes in the clinic. And what the nurse who was doing the flushes would do is she would draw 10 cc's of, of saline out of a common, like a multi-use IV bag. She would draw that 10 cc's out, inject in a patient, go right back with the dirty needle into that same IV fluid bag, draw 10 more and inject again. And she would do that over the course of the day and witnesses who tell the story in the book, by the end of the day, that IV fluid was pink. There was visible debris in the bag. And um, then the outcome of this is hundred people end up with hepatitis in this small community. And um, I've met Evelyn, you know, I've heard her story. And interestingly, um, when the ICAP team started going into dental practices, she was really interested in what we would be looking for in injection practices, et cetera. And um, I said, you know, Evelyn, how do you, like as a person who's had such an awful experience in healthcare, like how do you proceed to get care? She says, when I go into a dental office or somewhere to get care, I say, what's your infection control plan? I would like to see a copy of it. And so I really respect that she is such an advocate for herself, but I imagine few dental providers are aware of her story. Um, and so let's think about how do we inject in dental? And so Sarah, I would say, what are the most common um, procedures or like medicines you would inject in the dental care environment? That is an awesome story, Kate. And I know I, I borrowed that book from you. And if anybody out there is looking for a good read, it is a great read. Um, as far as the dental procedures that would use medications that we inject would be anything that we would use for that local anesthesia. So it could be fillings, extractions, crown and bridge, you know, just a whole host of procedures. Um, and the most common medications that we inject are those numbing agents. So usually lidocaine with epinephrine, that's the most common, commonly used. And then if there are contraindications for that lidocaine or epinephrine, there are some others out there that they use. Carbocaine, septicaine, marcaine. Um, but lidocaine with epinephrine is usually the most common. So Rebecca and my, my first question, our first questions to you in preparation for the call is how are those most commonly used injectables? How are they packaged and administered in your environment? Sure. So packaging for anesthetic carpules, they usually come in a box of 100 and they're packaged in little blister packs with 10 in each pack. And they're packaged sterile, which is great. But usually in practice, we don't use 10 at a time on a single patient. You'll use two or three maybe. Um, so you open up that blister pack and usually what happens is you take them out of the blister pack and they go in a drawer for storage in the operatory or in central storage or wherever. And once you do that, they're not sterile anymore. So um, then setting up for a procedure, you would grab a carpule and load it into your syringe to be used on the patient. Excellent point. So I think you, you highlighted the most important wisdom there is they can be packaged sterilely, but in practice, most of the time they aren't stored sterile. And so um, if we look to the most common resources for the best injection practices, the most common thing and the famous thing is the CDC injection safety checklist. And um, we'll put that into the call notes 
but I would encourage any provider who's doing infection control for their practice, pull that CDC injection safety checklist, because it really gives a great rundown of what needs to happen before any injection, including cleaning your hands, including how do you prepare the vial. And so the carpet that or the carpule, that's what you're calling it in dental in our environment where Rebecca and I usually practice, it's a vial. And so our vials often even have a little plastic flip top. And it's very common misconception that that flip top, is it sterile or is it not? Rebecca, if you flip off a dust cap, is the vial sterile or no? And the answer is no. And I'm so glad that you talked about that, Kate. Um, you know, I've been a registered nurse for 12 years and I'll be open and honest. When I first was a nurse for my first couple months, I remember going to um, a competency and I thought that the cap was sterile. So I remember one of the, the nurses saying, oh, you didn't, you know, rub that rubber diaphragm with that alcohol, you know, prior to injection. And I thought, well, you know, I thought that this was sterile. And so I'm so thankful that this nurse, you know, really educated me. And that's where my passion for injection safety, you know, really grew. And then it continued to grow um, as I was in employee health for several years, you know, running, um, you know, immunization programs for new employees and mass vaccination campaigns, you know, for influenza. And then later with the immunization program with the state, you know, looking at um, all of the immunizations that are given across Nebraska and kind of some of the really bad kind of sentinel events that can happen when we're not adhering to those um, safe injection practices. So um, you touched on that, you know, need to make sure that those dust caps, they are not sterile. And we need to make sure that we're using, um, you know, that alcohol to rub that um, rubber diaphragm and using that friction and allowing it to dry naturally, um, you know, prior to injection. When you talk about letting it dry naturally, one thing I'll add to that, because I think it's, it's better to coach people of the whys, you know, like, so if I take out a vial or a carpule and I swab the top with a fresh, fresh alcohol, the reason we're letting it dry is that disinfectant, the way it works is by evaporation, right? And so we have to let it dry because that's how we are killing the germs on the surface. They don't die instantly. Like the old, like spick and span ads, et cetera, like kills on contact. Very few things actually kill on contact. And so we let that alcohol dry. And carpules are kind of an interesting phenomenon because when I've seen them in practice um, on the dental visits, they're a little bit indented, aren't they, Sarah? They are, yeah. So they have like a little brass kind of ring around the top of them. And then the rubber is held underneath that. So there's a little bit of an edge there that you have to get down into. Yeah, and so I think this would be like you're saying, Rebecca, an awesome chance to engage people by competency. Uh, this isn't something a lot of people know. Let's teach it and see what people's practice is. Um, the other part of like, so to your point, Sarah, when you're in practice, you're, uh, when you are getting ready for a procedure, you would get, you would have clean hands, you get the carpules out of a cabinet. What next? Get the carpules out of the cabinet. Um, I usually try to get enough for the procedure plus an extra in case we need it, right? So there may be two or three or four on my tray. Um, once I am ready to load the syringe. Karen, when you say tray, this is sterile or non-sterile? This is non-sterile. So they're, they're clean and our instruments are packaged sterile, but most of the procedures that we do are not a sterile field. So, um, you know, you have your, 
your procedure tray, usually with a paper cover on it, all of your instruments on there, any supplies or materials that you would be using. Um, we get the anesthetic syringe, load the carpule into the little uh, cassette area where it goes, and then you would open your sterile needle, put that in the end and screw it down into the syringe. And that needle then punctures the carpule as you put it on the syringe. So the needle at the point that you take it out, you're handling it aseptically, the point that it punctures, the needle part is sterile. Yes. So we're not wiping that off or anything. That's sterile. No. Right. Um, the injection administration tool. And there's brand names for that. There's metal ones, there's plastic ones. How do you guys take care of those? So those anesthetic syringes, um, officially they're called um, aspirating anesthetic syringes because they have a little harpoon in the plunger so you can aspirate okay. with the carpule if needed. Um, those should be sterilized, heat sterilized. So once you're finished with that procedure, and you clean all your tray, you remove the needle safely, put it in sharps, remove your old anesthetic carpule, that gets sterilized with the rest of your instruments. So those are open to sterile per procedure. So then you could say soup to nuts. You have a needle, you have a carpule, you have a tool to the, with the harpoon on it. Each of those items has to be sterile in its own way or disinfected for safe injection. Needle is sterile, aseptically handled. By that, we mean not touching it with our gloved fingers even. You know, we're opening the package so we don't touch it. The carpule itself, you would clean it with an alcohol plugette before you plug it into your injector. And the injector between every procedure is decontaminated and heat sterilized. Yes. It's very interesting. And so we can say what we've seen in practice is people are um, naive. Um, to the idea that those carpules um, are not sterile once they sit in a drawer, et cetera, and naive to the idea that we could actually contaminate the fluid inside the carpule if we puncture it through a dirty um, diaphragm. Diaphragm is that little rubber thing. And so that's really the, the key takeaway is we can contaminate that sterile medicine if we don't disinfect the rubber diaphragm before we inject it. So I have a quick question for Rebecca and Kate. So say we are doing a procedure and we're gonna use two or three carpules, right? Can I disinfect all three carpules before the procedure starts with the alcohol or do I need to do it right before I load that syringe? It really needs to be right before. So when you're handling medication, um, you know, when you're taking that medication into the patient room, um, that's dedicated to that patient now. And so with your clean hands, you want to take that alcohol um, and, and alcohol wipe that carpet jet and let it naturally dry so that you um, have eyes on that process, um, you know, before you inject your patient. If you were to do it prior, there's that risk that you would leave and your um, and that kind of negates the sterility because you cannot um, validate that that um, carpet jet has not been, you know, touched or, or compromised in any way. I would add a reference to what Rebecca is talking about. There's a famous video in the dental care environment, right? If saliva was red. Yes. So I think I, I'm, I'm hearkening back to seeing that video of saliva was red and how it splashes all over the place during the procedure, right? And so I think the idea of the carpule sitting on your clean area, um, again, there's aerosols happening 
in the chair that give us rationale. Again, this is why we clean at the point of use because there's a lot happening in that environment that could contaminate those carpules while they wait. So then another question I have is if we don't use all of those carpules during a procedure, is it okay to wipe them with a disinfectant and store them and use them for another patient if they haven't been yeah. punctured? Yep, and that's a really good question. And we definitely wanna be fiscally responsible within each of our settings. But once you have taken that, um, that medication to the patient room or the treatment area, it is dedicated to that patient. So it should not be disinfected and then reused. That's great. So um, if you need extra anesthetic for a procedure, you don't have enough on your tray, then you know it's stored in the drawer there, then best practice would be to doff your gloves, practice hand hygiene, get in the drawer, get out what you need, doff or don your gloves again, right, with hand hygiene, and then disinfect that, load your syringe and go. That's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of that, sometimes in um, procedures that are taking exceptionally long or exceptionally busy, would you ever have a person who's kind of circulating in that might say, hey, do you need anything extra? And at that point, you could kind of refer to one of your buddies who's working and say, hey, can you grab me another carpule and throw it on my tray? Is that common in practice? It is usually, yeah. There's somebody extra always running around. Right, that they would clean their hands, get into the cupboard and provide it to you. Yeah. Um, the thing that, I, that you said that I actually learned in preparation for the call is um, the aspirating injector you're talking about. That's in dental, that's something that would happen um, during injection. So while they're injecting that um, numbing agent, the dentist can actually be pulling back some blood and body fluid into the carpule itself. So it's really, really essential that we be very clear. Those carpules are absolutely considered contaminated after they've been connected. We would never, never pool leftover medication for later use. Never ever do that. Yeah, and I think that is also a really good point, Kate. When they do that, you know, when they aspirate back into the syringe, they're kind of checking to see if they're in a vein or artery because you don't want to inject there. Um, but even if there's not any visible blood, they still are injecting something back into, or aspirating something back into that carpule. And I mean, I'm grateful that I've never observed somebody to consider reuse of a partially used carpule, never seen it. But I think it's at least be worth being very clear that it can never be done. And to your point, I think it's important as an infection control provider, I can't tell you how many times I've told people those bloodborne pathogens are present even in the absence of visible blood and body fluid. It's a really important thing we tell people over and over again, so they don't mistakenly believe if I didn't see blood, it can't be here. Um, so, so where where do those carpules where where are they discarded? That's a great question and one that I always got into a debate with whoever I was talking about this to. Um, they're glass, right? If they break, they're sharp and they're contaminated. Do they go in the sharps container? Um, when I was practicing, I put them in the sharps container just as a precaution. They do fill up your sharps container a little bit faster, but if you throw them in the garbage, then they break in the garbage 
then they're contaminated sharp. So um, I know Kate, you did a little bit of research on this, didn't you? What did you find? I found that um, the OSHA is where I looked and I was actually looking for kind of the definitions of car fuels and how OSHA looks at them and things like that. And um, it actually comes down to the local laws about how regulated pharmaceuticals are disposed because we worry about the glass breaking and blood and body fluid, yes, but usually we worry about blood and body fluid in pourable or drippable amounts. That's kind of like the golden rule of bloodborne pathogen containment. And so it depends on how much fluid is in the carpule, if you have pourable or drippable amounts of contaminated medicine. But we also worry in healthcare about if, you know, our waste downstream, what would people think of seeing medication in a vial? And I've definitely worked in environments where um, people who are drug seeking are curious about any medicine in a vial, and it could be dangerous um, that people might get into that and hurt themselves. And so um, it comes down to, is it pourable or drippable, the amount that's left in the carpule? And um, also what are the regulated pharmaceutical waste laws in your state of, is it going to Sharps box or a pharmaceutical waste box, which are usually like a black color or something like that. And so I think for people um, listening, you would have to ask your um, pharmaceutical, like your, what's the EPA rules in your area about that? So my understanding is for the state of Nebraska, if a car, a carpule would only go into sharps if it were broken or visibly contaminated with blood. And that's so that's, regu mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. current regulation. What do y'all think of that? I think better safe than sorry and just put it all in the sharps. That's what, that's where my head goes. I agree with I was that. Just, and thinking about that compared to Kate, what you were just saying was that often we have issues where something is contaminated and the blood isn't, or the contamination isn't visible. And so I find that, that uh, to be a very interesting dynamic of, we know that contamination isn't necessarily visible, but regarding carpules, the recommendations are to put it into sharps if the blood is visible. And, and is it one of those where it's better safe than sorry? Is it the difference between regulatory versus best practice? That's what I think. I do think, um, you know, Dr. Hankins has brought up this regulatory, um, you know, guidance, but I do think that best practice, I agree with Sarah, is to put it into the sharps container, um, just because we know that this germ, right, you know, this agent, like, let's say, you know, hepatitis B, for instance, you know, it's, it's a virus, um, you know, it lives, you know, in humans, and it, it's um, transported by blood and body fluids, even in the absence of, of visible blood, right. And so, it needs to have a way, um, when you look at your chain of infection, it has to have a way to escape. We already know that it can be, uh, you know, within that, within that purple. And so let's just be better safe than sorry. Let's go ahead and make sure that we don't have that mode of transmission and we don't have that portal of entry and we put it into our sharps container. Should it go into the garbage and it break, you know, then it's this sharp object that, you know, anyone who is there um, accidentally, you know, punctures themselves or is, is seeking and injects themselves, that's a portal of entry into a susceptible host, especially, you know, if they're unvaccinated, given hepatitis B. And there's lots of other um, bloodborne pathogens um, that we don't have, um, you know, vaccinations for. So I do think um, it's minimal amount of space. And I would recommend into the sharps container as a best practice. 
It's an excellent discussion, I, and I agree. Yeah, I bring this up with the idea of like, should we look into what could we do to try to bring regulation more in line with best practice? That's that's kind of where I was going with this. I think that's a really good thought. The one thing I'm going to put in as a caveat, in most dental practices, this is your only injectable, right? And this is not like a regulated pharmaceutical um, or, and I'm, I'm probably missing the right word, let's consider oral facial maxillo uh, care clinics where they're actually sedating people. Um, now we're talking about some scheduled narcotics like your Versed or Propofol, things that are scheduled and definitely of interest for people who want to seek um, to steal, right? And in those cases, if you're in a practice where you have drugs like that, they do not go in the sharps container. They have to go into... Um, some kind of medication waste system where the drug is solidified um, or you know locked in a different way. And so I think it's the, the best practice kind of becomes divergent. If that's your only injectable, I'm on the same page as you as your um, Sharps container. But if you work in a practice where you have other injectables, then I think you have to pursue a regulated waste um, containment system. And there's lots of options for that. So then on that note, um, because this anesthetic is not a regulated pharmaceutical, a lot of times when you are unloading that syringe because the harpoon is in the rubber stopper, it pulls the rubber stopper out of the end and the leftover anesthetic is just like on your tray, right? So if you have <laughs> a wet paper or there's a wet piece of gauze that has that medication on it, we don't need to do anything special with that, as long as it's not dripping wet. Is that correct? Again, like we're, we're getting to the point where we just, what we said is we said that if it's, uh, we have different, definite potential for viral particles to be in that. Um, remember that we have a couple different options. Our bloodborne pathogens can go to a sharps container or they can go to a red waste biohazard container. And that could be like a small baggie. You know, they have very small red waste bags that could be used for those um, contaminated paper products. And so um, it also becomes a cost consideration. You know, how much, like it costs money to um, throw away your red waste and your sharps. And so what's the most um, economically and safe way to manage this? It might be that if you have a lot of contaminated paper products that you have a small red baggie to put those things that are not sharp and then you put the carpels themselves that are sharp into a sharps container. Different options according to your needs, I think. But then am I correct in understanding though, unless that piece of gauze or paper is dripping wet, it can go in the garbage. Rebecca? Actually, yes. So, so when you look at your OSHA regulations, um, unless it's you know pourable, drippable, flakeable, um, you know, where it would have that um, mode of escape, if you will, um, it can go into um, the regular trash as long as it's a small amount. So when you look at um, your glucometers, for instance, you know, on that cotton ball, you may have, you know, a drippable, you know, that's blood or body fluid, but it's not pourable, it's not drippable, it's not flakeable. And so that small amount can go into the regular trash. You certainly could, um, could elevate that as, as Kate talked about and put that into, you know, the biohazard you know, um, I usually reserve, you know, my sharps for my, my sharps container, like those glass, you know, carpules that we, that we talked about. 
But I think it's really good throughout this discussion. We're talking about the various um, medications, if you will, that um, could be injected. So I think it's really important to talk about, you know, knowing what your what medication you're using, making sure that you're reading those instructions for use, um, you know, such as those, um, you know, the the carpels that you talked about in dental. Um, making sure that you're reading those, you know, when I'm looking at that package insert, you know, it really highlights the need to, um, you know, wipe that, that rubber diaphragm, you know, with the alcohol, you know, prior to administration. And I really like how you brought up that instance, Sarah, about, um, you know, you could have contamination on your tray. That's why it's important that any medication that's being brought into that patient room or that treatment room that's on that patient tray, it's dedicated to that patient. Um, you know, when we have those um, single dose vials that are for, you know, one patient for one procedure, you know, it will stay on the vial. If they're in a, a patient room in a drawer, you know, that's fine. You know, it could be used on the next patient as long as we're having clean hands and, and those type things. But when it's on that patient tray, it is dedicated. Even if you don't use it, it must be discarded. And always, always, always for any um, multi-dose vial, which are, are not the carpools, but you know, other items and, and other medication. If it is brought to a patient room, it must be dedicated to that patient, even if it's a multi-dose file. So that's so, an excellent question, Rebecca, because there I have asked about that in clinic and Sarah could tell from actual practice, but are there ever multi-dose vials in a dental clinical practice? And I have heard some antibiotics are dispensed as a multi-dose vial, is that right? There are, in, in general practice, it's not super common. Um, you know, like Kate said earlier, in those oral maxillofacial surgical centers, um, it's more common to see those multi-dose files in cosmetic practices that do things like Botox or those injectable fillers. It's common to see those. Um, and I think probably we could do a whole episode on the use of multi-dose files. Right, I agree. I agree. I put a bookmark in that, but I think the main things <laughs> to take away is look at the vial itself, make sure it's labeled as safe, you know, single patient use, single patient use means we throw it away after the procedure. Multi-dose vials are handled a different way. We'll call that chapter two. I yeah, think that I did great. have, I know we're running out short on time. I did have one more question for the experts. I have seen in practice where um, people will load an anesthetic syringe. So they have a sterile syringe, a sterile carpule, a sterile needle, but then they'll load that way before their procedure and they'll load up 20 of them and store them in a drawer so they can just grab one out when they need it. No, no, that is not, that is not best practice. So um, I'll use a common example, such as like a mass vaccination campaign, you know, for, for influenza. That's not, that's not best practice. These single dose um, vials, right? They can be vials or ampules, um, those two things. They don't have that um, preservative that has those um, antimicrobial properties, right? So, you know, the more it's already been accessed. So um, it's, it's a source of potential contamination. Plus there's um, what we've talked about earlier there's that um, you know, risk that you're gonna leave that medication and that it could be tampered with and, and you really can't maintain um, you know, that the sterility has not been compromised. So no, it is not you know, best practice for a variety of reasons. And it also runs the risk that you over um, you know, uh, 
you know, handle, you over make them in advance. And then, you know, this medication is expensive. And then you run that risk that someone might think, oh, well, we'll just use it tomorrow. And those two things, it, it should not be used. And really um, pre-drawing or pre-administering um, setup is not recommended. Definitely not recommended. And one of the other many good reasons not to do that is that um, when it's prepared for the patient in the presence of the patient, we know that's who it's for. If you've accessed it beforehand, is it used? Is it not? Is it contaminated? Is it not? Mistakes can happen. And so it's very important. I, I'm definitely an advocate for preparing the presence of the patient and discard after that patient leaves the environment. There should be no open medications between patients. Absolutely. All great advice. That was a fascinating conversation with our trusted guests. Uh, one doesn't uh, always think of all of these aspects as they're visiting a healthcare professional. Uh, so I'm glad that there are experts that are taking care of us that know the, the rules and best practices of how to keep us all safe. So Dan, as a non-healthcare person, has this changed the way that you think about your dental care? Uh, it, it, it does. Um, and uh, so have the uh, other podcasts in that um, I, I know that uh, through the conversations with uh, my dental provider uh, that uh, they are doing things the right way, at least as much as a layperson can ascertain. However, um, it does make me more aware of my surroundings as I go in. Um, it makes me more attentive uh, to what they do, how they do it, um, and it will uh, give me pause uh, when I see something that uh, doesn't uh, pass the, the, the visual test of at least what a layperson can see. Very good. I'm glad we've made an impact. So we want to thank all of our guests today uh, through uh, all of their continued guidance and through their uh, sharing of their expertise. And uh, we look forward to hearing the next interesting question on the next Mouthy IP podcast. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP infection control hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office. 